his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Y'all ready for round two here? All right. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Good to see everyone. And uh, again, you heard my presentation on our top priorities. And for those of you who are going to say, but you didn't talk about this. I encourage you to read it because it's guaranteed in the book. We just had to pull in some of the top lines that we had spoken about in our state of the state, develop them a little bit more, but uh, I'll be going out all over the state, everybody up here will, my commissioners, to go delve into uh, the specifics so everybody knows the details of our $227 billion fiscal year 2024 budget. So any questions? Governor. Governor. Oh, I'm sorry. So uh, last year, you held up the budget over uh, bail reform changes, I think, for about nine days. Wondering if you're prepared to do that again, because as we know, this is going to be probably one of the sticking points of the budget. So Karen, you're asking me to telegraph all my strategies on the very first day. I'll be working in a collaborative way. We have a very narrow focus. You know, last year was broader. We got some of the significant changes already. We needed to have some time to uh, you know, analyze the impacts, but have, what is glaring to us, and anyone who looks at it closely, is that our law has two different standards in it. And we're just focusing on that, the judges in one area are asked to consider factors in determining whether or not someone accused of a serious crime should be let out pre-trial or remanded or have bail posted. Or the other standard says least restrictive means. We are focusing on remedying that inconsistency. Governor, I wonder if you could shed more light on your charter school proposal. How many more do you anticipate in New York City? And do you expect a big pushback from Democrats who are very much against this and the teachers union in particular? What we're trying to do is something that is just common sense. This legislature approved 460 charter slots in New York State. That number has not been achieved. There's no need to raise a cap. But what did not make sense, as I try to approach government with common sense, is why there's a differential between the number of charter slots available for one city, New York City, and the rest of the state. So simply talking about combining those two numbers, so there's the same cap that had been in place, the same number, and making it one state. The other issue is the zombies, which are, again, again, a number that was agreed to and accepted by the legislature and everybody else they're concerned about. Maybe there's 12, 18, you know, whatever, depending on how you're counting it. Some that had been fully operational as a charter school that either closes on their own, shut down, whatever, and that's still one of those slots. So simply combining those two numbers 
does not raise the cap. It simply says, let's just simplify the process. Governor, on the NTA funding, um, does it square with the constitutional amendment that approved the new casinos and will it require a law change? Because I, I think a lot of it has to go to education, correct me if I'm wrong. There. No, we're not, we're not, we're talking about diverting part of the state share. We're not affecting education in this process. Um, this is an important source of funding for us to meet our obligations to, to education. So we'll look at the legality of whether it has to be changed. I don't know that it does because we're talking about using part of the state share. Um, language in the Constitution. Um, Governor, the immediate term MTA funding seems to keep the lights on there, which is nice, but it doesn't seem to have any money for increased service, uh, which experts have said could increase ridership, which could then maybe bring in more money. It uh, doesn't seem to have enough to uh, keep the fair hike from happening. Why is that? Well, we have a fiscal cliff that was unanticipated when they put forth their original plans for capital and operating. I mean, there was a plan that was blown out of the water because of the pandemic. When you're counting on a high percentage of your revenues to be derived from fares, and there's no fares to be collected, you really have to reset your expectations and how we're going to manage through this time. Now, one option is to ignore it. You know, people don't use the MTA. Some would say, well, why are we focusing so much on that? And I'm saying the New York City economy drives the state of New York. MTA helps drive the New York City economy, so it's critically important to all of us, and I'm trying to uh, share that philosophy with people and else, elsewhere in the state. So we have to make those investments, and you have to look at the various pots of funding that are available. You know, increasing the payroll mobility tax will generate $800 million. Now that's a small increase from 3.4% to 0.5%, but the scale of that is significant. That's gonna be helpful. We're having conversations about the city and their share and the state. Our budget is looking to support this as well. So Micah and, and Catherine, you've been very involved in this. When you look at the size of the fiscal cliff that the MTA is facing and how critical it is to uh, not only the city's economy but the region, it needs everyone to come up and participate in the solution. And that's including riders and businesses and the state and the city, as well as the MTA making sure that they are doing the efficiencies. So that is why we're moving forward in a way that is uh, to ensure that the governor is leading on making sure the MTA is with us for a long time to come. On the Medicaid uh, reimbursement rate increase, is the hope that that money will go toward increasing staff in the short term, increasing operations costs, and is there any concern that that could, you know, kind of lead to perpetual spending increases in the broader Medicaid program? No, it's a concern of ours, very much so, is, you know, the escalation of costs for Medicaid, especially if you look at the out years, it's rather dramatic. But we also, again, similar to the MTA, this is another part of the fallout from the pandemic. You know, hospitals had to incur so many more costs at a time when their revenues were declining. They couldn't do elective surgery for a long time, which is what supports a lot of their operations. They were told to, you know, move beds offline for COVID purposes. And a lot of them were unstable in the beginning, and now they're destabilized because of the extraordinary costs. So, so again, it's another area you can't just close your eyes and hope it goes away. You have to make decisions. But also, and, and I'll let um, Catherine respond to that as well, but also as I talk about the health care crisis, it's also the mental health crisis, 
And what we have to do to get more beds back online, as I mentioned last year, now we're gonna put more teeth behind making this happen, is to compress the, the reimbursement that exists now between psychiatric beds and non-psychiatric beds, because hospitals said, well, they lose so much money on psychiatric beds. You understand, I mean, psychiatric nurses cost more, psychiatrists cost more. But so we listened to them and we shrank the differential so there's a financial, there's no longer a financial disincentive. So that's one area we had to make some changes in just those reimbursements. But uh, Catherine and Micah are- Certainly, and the governor in this administration takes uh, what healthcare costs very seriously. It is a huge part of New York State's budget. Uh, but we also know that we need to ensure that healthcare is available for all of our residents, particularly in an equitable way and that we're getting good outcomes. Um, that does require continuing investment, but it is also where <clears throat> we will continue to work with providers to make sure uh, that we are getting the efficiencies that we need moving forward. I would just add only that the, that we're seeing, you know, the, the cost structures have changed dramatically, and that's why the governor has proposed a future of health care commission that will be looking at all of these issues on a long-term structural basis. Why, why does the budget not allocate opioid settlement fund dollars to overdose prevention centers contrary to the recommendation of your own opioid settlement advisory board? We've said we're going to look at an all-the-above approach. I know that uh, some states like Rhode Island are taking a very comprehensive look at that right now, and uh, we're interested in seeing what the results are. Anything else on that? Governor, yeah. I wanted to ask you about education. You know, the money from gambling lottery and from casinos is, was supposed to, a portion was supposed to go in, uh, to education instead of from the general fund coming in, not in addition to. Why do you need a record number uh, of dollars, you know, going to education when we know throwing money at the issues of education is not necessarily solving any of the problems in the school system? I wouldn't call it throwing money at it. This was in response to the settlement of the foundation aid lawsuit that had been going on for a very long time. And so now under that agreement, we owe the foundation aid uh, number to be $2.7 billion, which is basically a large part of the $3 billion increase. So that was meeting an obligation to fund, particularly communities and schools that, you know, there is, there's a lot of disparity in our education systems, depending on where you live, when you have a system that's funded primarily by property taxes. Uh, so we've, you know, we, we've made sure that we're investing properly, but also you know, telling the schools money goes toward mental health services. We're gonna have additional programs to help kids. And so I believe that we, can, we have a role to play in um, offering more guidance on our priorities on how that money should be spent. Anybody else? Governor, just increase on foundation aid was the result of the governor's leadership in resolving a dispute that went back decades. Uh, that resolution exists separate and apart from the issue of where casino funding goes, and I think that the record increases that the governor's giving to our public schools allows for the comprehensive MTA solution that she's proposing in this budget. Um, have you discussed it with the president? Has the federal government committed to this one-third split? And how much total money is the state actually committing to providing to New York City to deal with this? Well, the numbers continue to change because the number of individuals is changing. You know, there was a 20,000 number a while back, and all of a sudden it's 40,000. And, but it also, we're, once these individuals are qualified 
Do you have status to be able to get a job? The need to support them will diminish exponentially. So this is a transition period, so we don't know the exact number coming, but we do know that the number is going to decrease in terms of people needing additional service. So I've had many conversations uh, with the President, with Secretary of Homeland Security, with the former Chief of Staff Ron Klain on this very topic, supporting the city's efforts to get more engagement from the federal government. We've raised that. Also, we were with the President yesterday, and he did say that there'd be money coming from the federal government to help the city. He did not give a number, but we believe that they should be picking up a significant share. I've supported that from the very beginning. But you can't at this point just sit there and hope that day will come when it hasn't come at the level we still need yet. So we are supportive. Uh, we are going to commit to pay what is historic, historically done, which is 29% of the emergency shelter funds, health care assistance. We've already been using resources from our National Guard. A thousand National Guard members have been there for many, many months helping run the facilities. I mean, they literally put together baby cribs and bring in blankets. I mean, they're taking care of people in a way that, you know, is extraordinary. Um, so, the, you know, the city's doing their share, we're doing our share, the federal government's doing their share. But, but again, continuing to push for support and the desire we all have is to allow these people to get to jobs because there's a lot of employers are saying, I'd like to hire them, but that's why we're adding more money to legal services so they can start the application process literally when they arrive instead of falling between the cracks and then they're hard to find to be able to start the process to get legal asylum here. The money that the federal government wouldn't cover up to one third. What was the question? What mechanism is there in the budget to cover any amount of that one third that you want the federal government to pay that perhaps they might not end up? We're going to keep asking the federal government for their assistance. And they know that we have a plan where we are providing a great deal of assistance. The city obviously has been providing a tremendous amount of assistance, but we also are going to keep pushing. And again, we have federal leaders with great influence in our state. Um, that we call upon to assist with this as well. Any, anything else on that? To the bail laws. <laughs> uh, on the on the asylum seeker funding, the, the budget briefing book says a billion. The state's committing to a billion dollars. Is that in addition to what the state has already done? I mean, you mentioned that twenty nine percent, or is this existing funding? A combination of both. It can. Again, correct me if I'm wrong here, team, but uh, we've been living and breathing these numbers. The commitment of 29% of the emergency shelter costs is something we've done historically, but in this case, we're going to activate that for the, for the migrants. That's a new pot of money. Um, healthcare. The federal government during COVID has been picking up the cost for Medicaid costs for healthcare as long as there's a COVID emergency. When that time frame lapses, which we're being told is May now, that's an additional cost that we're trying to account for because that would be on the state. Um, the legal services, we're already providing legal services. We're going to increase that number. I think we're at about three million now. Going to go up more, and I'll let Sandra Sandra can correct me on all these numbers. And then the National Guard, um, that's going to remain where it is. Sandra, do you have different numbers on this, or anybody else, Catherine? The thing that I would add is that there is. Uh, while we have been supporting the city with the National Guard, for example, or through the Medicaid program, those numbers had not yet been recognized in our budget, uh, and we are doing that now at this time. But the new uh, additional funding 
is while we usually typically fund about 29% for family shelters, uh, we would not normally have, we would not have been required to fund any of these sheltering costs for the migrants. And so that is a, a new dollar figure. Governor, just wanted to ask about your child care proposals. I know you um, added about the new tax incentive for businesses, but last week at a hearing about this, providers did say that a $5 billion annual investment for universal care and increasing uh, pay for staff would be the only way to um, reverse the, you know, the economic damages of the pandemic and also the, the deserts that are increasing across the state. Why isn't universal child care part of your proposal? And um, also they say that if you increase tight minimum inflation that just, and without doing universal um, child care, that that would just increase their issues. So how, why is there multiple one and not the other? I would put forth a $7.7 .7 billion investment in child care as rather historic. I mean, that is going to be used to allow 500,000 more kids to be eligible. When I first took office, someone will correct me, but it was, it was you know, 67,000? 55. 55,000 55, was the maximum that a family could earn. A family of four could earn before they can get any of our state subsidies. And last year I said, are you kidding me? That's so low. So we increased it more, um, increasing it up to what the federal poverty level allowed us. That added about another 400,000 young people. And I looked at it again. I said, that's still not meeting the needs. So we increased it up to 97. 97,000 is the threshold. So now we're going to have a half million children eligible. And the challenge is, is not that the money isn't there and the support isn't there. We have 10% of eligible families taking advantage of it. And then you say, as I discussed earlier, why is that? Why are only 10% of eligible families taking advantage of this? So they, we realized we went back and peeled back the onion, what's going on here? And it's just so complicated, and parents are just saying, I, I can't do this. So that's why our plan to have instant eligibility for families who would already be getting government services, they would have had to already qualify based on their income and their status and their situation for other programs. Why not flip that over and just make it easier? But you're mentioning the provider side. What happened during the pandemic, we had to artificially keep a lot of childcare centers alive because parents were home. I mean, moms were not going to their jobs. They were working remotely. They were so we had a lot of childcare centers with almost no children in them at all. And we're now we're just shifting back. And again, there's a lot of people still working remotely. The demand, and I did statewide, you know, as Lieutenant Governor, I covered the whole state having hearings on this, the crisis always was affordability, which we're dealing with, but also availability. And what flipped during the pandemic is there was more slots available than were being used. But I also agree with you that we need to continue supporting the providers. Uh, they need more resources. Um, does our budget consider? I would just also add that we, in, in addition to the increase in eligibility, which now will take us to the maximum allowable for federal subsidy, the uh, increase the streamlining proposals around application, which we think will dramatically increase uptake. We're also talking about uh, allocating hundreds of millions of dollars in support for providers and for the workforce uh, in response to the pandemic. Governor, um, some of your proposals, uh, both the housing proposal and um, the idea of using the payroll mobility tax to sort of drive money toward the MTA, They've, they've, they've caused a lot of consternation among officials, businesses, and people on Long Island. 
that's not an area where you did well in the last election. Uh, it was not the core of your base of support. And I'm just wondering if you have a response to people in that area who kind of feel like maybe they're, they're being picked on or they're, 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 they're getting the short end of the stick um, this year in some of your proposals. Right. Just so all New Yorkers understand, nothing I do in a budget is driven by politics, elections, outcomes. I'm guided by what is best for New Yorkers. And I've talked to so many business leaders and elected leaders on Long Island who support this because they know they're losing out to New Jersey and Connecticut and other states because they don't have housing. When you have a region that's as desirable as Long Island, and there are extraordinary assets on Long Island, and great employers want to be on Long Island, especially in the, uh, the research corridor with Stony Brook and, and what we're doing with Cold Spring Harbor and what we're doing uh, with our offshore wind. I mean, and, Brookhaven, my gosh, we have resources like no other place on this earth. And there's people want to bring jobs there. And the number one I get complaint from employers who want to expand or who want to go there, there's no housing for our workers. So this is a situation that ultimately will support Long Island expanding their tax base because taxes are very high. The more businesses you have, the more people living there, the more it's spread around. This is after managing a lot of municipal budgets. This is helps them, the more people there are. So I will deal with any initial reservations or hesitations or people disagreeing with me. I have no trouble going out there and speaking to everybody from the Long Island Association and the contractors and the businesses and the people and the elected leaders. I will go there because I want to just tell them this is all about liberating Long Island to be the best it can be. And people want to be able to raise their kids in the same fabulous communities they raised in themselves the great educational opportunities, the higher education. So um, I think that any spin on it to say to the contrary is just not true. And Rebecca, then Josh, and then reminder, Sandra's available at 2 p.m. Um, just uh, two quick questions. First, regarding the migrant crisis, uh, Mayor Adams has repeatedly asked for state assistance to relocate migrants out of New York City to other willing cities throughout the state. Um, as far as I know, you have not uh, committed to helping with that particular initiative. Is any of the billion dollars going to go towards assisting relocation to other cities that have the capacity? Rebecca, what we found in speaking to you know, the mayor nonstop over this, our staffs talk every single day on this, and have been for a very, very long time. Uh, the request to see about relocation, we talked to county executives and mayors who want to be helpful. But there is a qualifier, too. Because of the status that these individuals have, not the same as refugee status for someone from Afghanistan or Ukraine, where they can get a job very quickly, there is a significant time lapse before individuals who apply. It's six months after they've applied. Is that right? It's a lot longer than I thought it would be. I don't, I don't, okay. So after you've applied. So I believe there's going to be a huge outpouring of support for people to go elsewhere especially when they have this status. And some of them should be approaching this now. They've been here long enough. And I will continue supporting them. I've talked to leaders. There's an interest. But for now, our focus is to help the city get through this and also open up opportunities to other parts of the state because there is interest. But they don't get the same federal reimbursement as if someone had a refugee status. So There's a different dynamic going on. But we've talked to them about assisting them financially as well. 
Anything else to add to that? Catherine, Catherine Zarf. You know, the, the only thing I would say is, is we want to make it so that when people are able to move and want to move to other parts of the state that we make sure that that's effective um, and welcoming as it has been particularly for the Ukrainian and Afghanistani refugees that have moved to many of the towns across the state. Plan. Um, I don't believe I saw any uh, references to labor requirements uh, for the new projects, new construction. Is that something that will be included in the details of your actual, actual bills, or are there not going to be you know, specific labor requirements for the new construction? Well, we're also asking the private sector to step up without, you know, on their own. We're, we're, put, we're putting on localities our expectation that they will increase their housing stock by 3% downstate 1% upstate, so, so that'll be worked out the way housing gets built in those communities already. We're not telling them they have to do this at this point. But for larger affordable housing projects where we have part of our $25 billion investment there, yes, we have restrictions and requirements on that. Is that yeah, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. The, the, the bulk of the housing plan is about removing obstacles to traditional development and thus would not in the normal course involve those kinds of uh, protections. The one exception I would note is on the commercial conversions proposal, where you are talking in general about large buildings in the city of New York currently subject to uh, prevailing wage requirements for building service workers, and the governor's proposal would extend those uh, requirements to the converted buildings. Josh. Governor, two quick unrelated questions. Can uh, I say any unrelated questions, Josh? Go on. Go on. Oh, go on. I thought you said unrelated. I said Toss them out. No, no. We've got enough on the budget to talk about. I'll be out so often, you'll get me anytime you want, but gun related. Yes, sorry about that. Uh, is it, do, you view it as, do you view it as necessary to keep the state of emergency related to gun violence to uh, achieve your goals on gun violence and getting that money out the door? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, those who know me know that it's a rare day when I say I'm satisfied that we're done. We're moving on. We still have a gun crisis in many of our cities. You know, we've seen better numbers in terms of shootings and homicides compared to what we went through during the pandemic. But judging ourselves by the pandemic here is not my standard of what success looks like. I'm going back pre-pandemic and the numbers are looking better, but I speak to mayors all the time. Uh, I just visit, recently visited the mayor of Rochester in Syracuse. And you know one of the problems they're having I said, do you have enough police officers? I can add, you know, add more people. You have some of our state police on the ground. He says, we had an academy of class that just graduated a couple weeks ago. He said, only five people are in it. He says, we are funded. I said, is this a funding issue? He said, we are funded up to, I think, again, I don't have the exact number, but about 480 we're funded up to. And we only have in the 300s of police officers. So, so there's also another dynamic that's going on that the cities that are struggling to get guns out of the hands of individuals who should not have them or stop the flow of guns from coming into them are, have, are struggling with meeting the, that demand with resources and people. So I believe that we still need that status of the emergency. It allows us to do what we need to do, but uh, I hope there's a day when we say it's over, but I don't see that happening yet, especially in communication with a lot of city mayors. That's why we're adding $317 million, about a $100 million increase to the, uh, the gun violence elimination initiatives, the GIVE program, which we're told are very successful. We don't, I don't tell people that it's successful, they tell me. 
I have regular communication with elected leaders, but anything else on our GIVE program? We're good, we're good. For some key grant programs, it's narrowly construed. It's not used broadly to, uh, you know, avoid following procurement guidelines. But for these very needed grant programs, it's still needed. Yeah. That's, that's the even better answer. I apologize, Governor. Yeah. Changing the bail law—is it just the conflicting language, or were you looking at other data regarding crime or repeat offenders that also forced some of these thoughts to change them? No, we looked at this very thoughtfully and realize what judges are telling us, that they don't have the clarity that they need to have when someone's before them and meets the standards of being bail eligible in particular, you know, what criteria they use to determine whether or not to impose bail or not, or let someone out, impose bail or remand. And what we're, they tell us is, what are we supposed to do? We, we have standards they're supposed to look at. Was there a gun involved? Is this, you know, a repeat crime? Was there an order of uh, protection violated? Was there was this a hate crime? So there's a list of criteria you're supposed to look at on this side of the ledger. Over here it says, but you have to use the least restrictive means to ensure they return to court. I'm not sure how that's resolved easily. And I want judges to be held accountable for their decisions because I don't really know which standard they're applying here. And so this is part of just fixing one area that I think is gonna be, it's just important to get that clarity for the judges. So I didn't need crime data to show me anything. In fact, we, we look at data a lot, but I'm not, I never said that, I never said that the bail changes are responsible for the crime rate because we had a nationwide crime rate. I always point that out, it's gonna fall over the country. And statistically, we're still the safest big city, the safest big state in America. And I'm not just comparing ourselves to, you know, Washington, Chicago, and LA. I'm talking about, you know, San Antonio, in Salt Lake City and other places that people say they're going to because they're safer, that's not the data. So those that data should be looked at always. Look at it, understand it, study it. Are there trends we need to be concerned about? But that is unrelated to what we're trying to do right here, which is to correct a deficiency in state law. Thanks, Governor, anything to say about Hector LaSalle? Any update on where that stands? Or are we just sort of Working on our budget, weighing all of our options. I couldn't hear. Increase the budget by 14 <laughs> percent. That would not be nice. <laughs>His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi and even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of colors starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.